the 45th President of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. People are so frustrated in this country. Free speech under fire. They're bringing drugs. How desperate the left has become. How desperate Democrats have become. become. They're bringing crime. Dissolution of the country. They're rapists. Sever the ties that unite us as a nation. With the challenges and crises that we face right now, this is not the time to divide this country. Hi, I'm Denzel Mitchell. I'm Tahi Wiggins. And I'm Avery Shivers. And this is Main Street Speaks, the podcast that discusses rural news, politics, and history from the perspective of three college students from the Northern Neck of Virginia. For us to be able to truly reform these uh, issues, mere advocacy is not enough. It's going to require changes to how we conduct our policy. Today, we're excited to bring you an interview with Qasem Rashid. Democratic candidate for Congress for Virginia's 1st District. We discuss Rashid's background and decision to run for Congress, recent attacks by his opponent, rural broadband access, how to serve rural and urban communities in the district equally, how he contrasts with his opponent, how he'll be accessible if elected, and his plans for his time in Congress if elected. So thank you again, uh, Qasem, for meeting with us today. Uh, it's a real privilege. We know you're very busy. Um, so we're, we're excited to be able to sit down and, and talk with you. Thank you for this opportunity, uh, Denzel, Avery, and Tahi, to speak with you and converse with you. Um, our campaign has focused from the get-go on being engaged, on being accessible, um, not because of any kind of political stunt, but this is just who I am as a person. Um, I'm always open and eager to have dialogues uh, from folks um, across the political spectrum, whether I agree with them or not, because dialogue is how we build understanding, is how we lead with compassion, it's how we truly fight for justice. So first and foremost, uh, we want to apologize again for implying that you made an error in stating that the Republicans' police reform bill did not ban chokeholds. Uh, we said this in our episode, recapping your, your first debate with Rob Whitman. And as we since have stated, you were correct to state that the bill, the Republican bill, did not ban chokeholds. And Rob Whitman was actually incorrect for saying that it did. But um, speaking, speaking of your opponent, we want to first address some of the recent Islamophobic attacks on you. Uh, Rob Whitman has been running expensive TV ads and sending out mailers with using words such as radical. His radical tweets reveal his dangerous ideas. Attempting to tie you with Islamic terrorism because of your faith. Rashid alleged America is to blame for terrorist attacks. Rashid mocked the deaths of Americans killed by extremists, raged against rebuilding our military. I, I believe you have received attacks like this from previous political opponents, and your family's life was endangered as a result. What do these attacks say about your opponent, um, Congressman Whitman, and what have you learned is the best way to respond to these attacks? You know, this, these attacks from my opponent, I think, say a couple of things. Um, one, I think it's an implicit admission. It's a clear admission from him that he is so um, ashamed of his own record uh, or of his failures in Congress that he can't find a single thing to run on to demonstrate his service to the community. And so rather than leading with hope, uh, with inspiration, uh, with confidence, with conviction, um, he is uh, trying to tear down another person with really dangerous rhetoric. And look, this sounds really 
strange for me to say, but I'm used to getting death threats from extremists, you know, ISIS, Taliban, white supremacists. Um, I did not expect a sitting congressman to engage in rhetoric that could put, you know, my life and the, and the life of my wife and young children in danger. But here we are. Um, and I just want to emphasize that I think this is what's wrong with politics, that, um, you know, politicians are so focused on power and on control, they forget that they're here as public servants and they're here to be a beacon of hope, uh, of unity, of compassion. And so we're not going to respond in kind. Um, I have enough confidence in the people of the first district to rise above the misinformation and bigotry. And I have enough self-confidence in showing the work I've done to support women who are survivors of domestic and sexual violence, to fight for Christians persecuted for their faith, uh, to stand up against racial injustice and demand better accountability, uh, to fight for economic justice for middle-class workers, for small businesses. That's what our campaign has always been about. And um, you know, if he wants to continue this misinformation uh, that's extraordinarily dangerous um, and just contrary to the values of Virginians, I mean, Virginia is for lovers, right? Last I checked. Um, so if he wants to keep doing that, that's his, his prerogative. Um, we're going to spend our time and our resources on bringing folks together. That's what I've done my entire career as a human rights lawyer, and uh, that's what I bring to Congress. Going more into your, your personal identity, uh, some people know you immigrated to America as a child, you became a citizen, uh, and eventually became a human rights lawyer, and you've been raising ch three children with your wife, who's a small business owner. So considering this, this background, uh, what, what in it makes you decide that you wanted to run for Congress? Uh, when did you first make that decision? And how has your career and your upbringing inspired you to do so? You know, it's one of the beauties of this nation that um, a kid who arrived here uh, from a country that persecutes him for his faith, um, who didn't know a word of English when I arrived, um, could you know, be successful um, in school, as an undergrad, um, in law school, as a human rights lawyer, um, have a brother serve in the U.S. Marines uh, honorably, and then be a viable candidate for U.S. Congress. I mean, that for me is the epitome of what makes this country truly special and, and why um, I love this country so much and why my children, um, uh, I'm, I'm proud to raise my children in this country. Um, the, the, the push to run for Congress, I think, um, there's two ways I look at it. Um, one way is the seeds that were planted at a very young age. And the second thing is kind of the elevation of that first message that our parents ingrained in us, that our purpose is to be servants of humanity. Um, at a very young age, that seed was planted. That was ingrained in our mind that everything you do, you have to center service to humanity. And if you're not, you're wasting your time. And that was the word they use, it's a very direct word. And so, you know, throughout my life, I've been fortunate to have an incredible teachers, amazing teachers who, who guided me, mentored me, pushed me, uh, you know, pushed me beyond uh, and out of my comfort zone to learn and understand and to challenge myself and, and continually self-improve. Um, and that's why I, I went into human rights law in the first place. My wife, Aisha, actually talked me out of going to grad school and encouraged me to go to law school for human rights work. Um, at Richmond Law, um, go spiders, if any spiders are listening. Um, I, I got involved with the Virginia Poverty Law Center, their Office of Domestic and Sexual Violence. Uh, and that's DV work I do to this day on a pro bono basis. Um, was 
uh, asked to sit on boards uh, as the board of directors for nonprofits who work on combating school bullying, particularly for children from uh, uh, racial minorities, LGBTQ minorities. Um, and the two things I've learned in my years working across the spectrum on these issues, I was a prison chaplain for four years, is that these issues that impact our society, whether it's food insecurity, whether it is um, uh, mental illness or addiction, um, these aren't political issues. And, and what I mean by that is um, hunger doesn't just impact one political party. It doesn't care if you're Republican or, or Democrat or Libertarian or what have you. Um, it's, a, it's a human issue. And if we're going to truly resolve these issues, we have to remember that we are indeed the United States of America. We must work across the spectrum. And, and on these issues, that's why I've, I'm grateful that the nonprofits that I've worked with and supported, um, we don't make political decisions. We look at who is struggling, who's suffering, and provide that support as best we can. Even though I've been extraordinarily critical of this administration, um, I've also been uh, forthcoming with my praise when things were done right. I, I publicly commended the president with the First Step Act because I thought it was a critical step in the right direction. Um, you know, Ambassador at Large Sam Brownback, the Religious Freedom Ambassador at Large, invited me to join him on a private meeting with, uh, at the Holocaust Museum with uh, people who have survived religious persecution. Uh, Mike Pompeo uh, invited me to the State Department Religious Freedom Ministerial to speak. Uh, to re representative and heads from 80 different countries around the world on the importance of religious freedom. Um, and so having recognized the importance of working together on a bipartisan uh, level to truly address these issues that impact all of us, the second realization I came to was that there are certain issues that are systemic, that go far beyond uh, mere advocacy. Uh, the criminal justice system, there are systemic injustices that need to be uh, rebuilt. Our economic system is fundamentally broken with a level of wealth and income inequality. And for us to be able to truly reform these uh, issues, mere advocacy is not enough. It's going to require changes to how we conduct our policy. And so having had the privilege of working in the trenches for the last 10, 15 years on these issues at their core, on the front lines, this run for Congress is really about transforming that advocacy into policy to ensure that working families, uh, folks like you and I, um, who weren't born with a silver spoon in our mouth, um, have representation. And, and I believe we're doing this the right way. We're, you know, our campaign slogan is compassion through action for a reason, because we, we lead with compassion and we take action to reflect that. We support those who are struggling. Um, uh, you know, to, today, we've already served um, over 1,500 constituents in the first district with food and water access, with face mask access. We've worked with several DV shelters, hospitals, medical clinics. Um, and, and we're not taking any corporate money. We're, we're fully funded by the people. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's a key component because, again, that's a bipartisan thing. Over 78%, over I believe, last I checked, uh, of Americans want to get corporate money out of politics. Uh, my opponent has taken over $3 million in corporate money. We've taken uh, zero. So it's that approach that uh, has ultimately led me to, to run for Congress, and uh, we're excited about the momentum we're building. So our next question is, aside from broadband internet access, uh, since we're going to talk about that more later, um, what areas of rural development and policy uh, require attention and reform? Well, I approach this question from a, a basic quality of life uh, angle. Like, what's going to increase quality of life? And I think the two things outside of broadband that we 
critically need in, in rural communities, at least in the conversations I've had with uh, thousands of folks in the rural communities, um, is uh, healthcare, uh, making sure there are more medical facilities and better healthcare access, um, and, uh, and better transportation needs, some more public transportation, just to, to make mobility uh, easier, especially for our senior citizens, especially for young people who may not have uh, access to uh, a vehicle or, or a car. Um, and, and broadband is, is, a, is a foundation to both of those, but you know, both of those I think are critical. There was a massive infrastructure bill that passed the house that would have uh, helped develop both of those things. My opponent voted against it. Unfortunately, it was a bipartisan bill that he voted against. And since the first district also has some urban and suburban communities as well as rural communities, how will you balance addressing the needs of the urban areas with addressing the needs of the more rural parts of the district? Well, I think you're speaking to how gerrymandered this district is, and uh, hopefully, you know, the reform helps address that so that uh, our constituents can have uh, more holistic representation. But you know, again, I think this is going to be true of most any district. There's going to be, you know, a wide array of the types of needs constituents have, and for us, this is the importance of being present, of of being in front of our constituents uh, proactively as opposed to um, you know, being reactive. Uh, instead of sending out polls that you, know, you never hear the answers to, being out in the community and talking to folks and responding. Um, for example, we've signed the town hall pledge, uh, which is a written promise that once elected, we will hold at least one public town hall every quarter the entire time that uh, we're in office. That means at least eight town halls throughout the district, at least. Uh, my opponent, by contrast, has held his last town hall was in March of 2019. So he held one in the first quarter of this term and the last seven quarters, he's held nothing. Um, and, uh, and I think that's just a, a contrary to what a public servant should do. So, um, you know, there's no um, magic uh, silver bullet that's gonna say, you know, with this one answer, we can address all the problems of the folks in the first district. But my commitment and promise is that I don't view these conversations as transactional. I view these as the ignition of a relationship. And uh, my message to those who are uh, voting, hopefully everybody's voting, is that uh, I'm not interested in serving only those people who vote for me. I'm interested in serving everybody within the first district. And, and my commitment and promise is that, uh, you know, God willing, we went on November 3rd, on November 4th, I'm gonna maintain the same level of accessibility. I'm extraordinarily proud of the fact that we've held well over 100 public events um, uh, during this year. And obviously they were socially distant once the pandemic started. But um, that's the type of accessibility that I wanna continue uh, to ensure that every person who wants to get involved and reach out can. And I think by listening uh, and doing so in a meaningful manner, uh, by being present, not screening questions, we can better understand stay on top of and proactively address the concerns of the first district. We're going to talk about broadband internet now since it's such a big problem. Growing up, um, I have friends who had to sit in the library parking lot uh, after closing hours just to access the internet so they could finish their homework. And the internet, and like I'm sure, I mean, like you have already said, is, is important for everything from accessing telehealth care to, to paying your bills and even applying, applying for jobs. So, so lack of access to broadband internet is a, is a problem for all rural as a residents of every demographic, but it's especially a problem for low-income residents who can't afford it. 
could you explain for our listeners um, how how you want to expand rural broadband internet access and how is your plan different from what has been attempted in the past? Because as you know, we've, we've heard about this for years. Our plan is different uh, than what's been tried because our plan works. Um, that's a very simple answer. And the, way, the reason we know it works is because our plan is built on a proven model. Um, on day one, we will introduce the Rural Broadband Authority. Um, and this bold plan will uh, transform broadband internet into a public utility just like the Rural Electrification Act of 1936 made electricity a utility, just like water was transformed into a utility when coal miners were uh, demonstrating how critical it was for their health and safety in Appalachia. Um, the, the, the current model, uh, so let me talk about two things. Well, one, the current model, and two, the, the, the model that we know works. The current model has sunk $400 billion in taxpayer money into corporations in the hopes that they build out broadband through these public-private partnerships. Now, if that model worked, America would not be 25th in the world in broadband connectivity right now. Uh, if that model worked, then according to Microsoft, 150 million Americans wouldn't still be deprived access to rural broadband. If that model worked, we wouldn't be suffering through digital redlining where black and brown communities, even in urban areas, are denied access to uh, high-speed broadband. Um, we know that model does not work. And, and we know it doesn't work because the only reason these telecom companies are going to build out broadband is if it makes them money. And again, that doesn't make them bad or evil. It just makes them someone focus on money. And what we need is uh, the access to broadband internet that every single person deserves. And this is the interesting thing because my opponent and I agree that broadband is foundational. He just gave a, a recent uh, a uh, set of remarks to uh, a couple of college students. And he said, yeah, broadband is foundational to our success and our growth as the economy. We apparently seem to disagree what the meaning of foundational is because I understand foundational as you cannot build unless you have that foundation present. And so for us, um, we wanna reject this failed idea of sinking billions more into corporations in hopes that they do the right thing. Um, and, and, and we need to in instead invest in projects that work. Um, investing in broadband as a uh, utility run by the local municipality has been done close to a thousand times around the country and it's been done successfully and uh, some of the success stories are just awe-inspiring. Chattanooga, Tennessee 10 years ago uh, implemented broadband as a utility. They built it out for the entire city of nearly 200,000 people 10 years ago uh, and I, I, I point out 10 years ago because I want you to remember that my opponent has been in office 13 years now. And even now he's talking about trying to get 25 megabyte speeds for broadband internet. Well, 10 years ago, Chattanooga, Tennessee said, you know, forget this failed model, let's invest in it as a utility and see what happens. Well, here's what happened. Now they have one gigabyte speeds. That utility company employees up to has created about 5,000 jobs locally. And they've attracted major employers like Volkswagen to set up shop and create thousands of more jobs. It has been a massive boost to their economy. It has been a massive boost to their uh, quality of life, their education, their healthcare, their small businesses. Um, it can't be overstated enough. And so when we know this model works, when we know we can provide access quickly and immediately, when we know that we can take the 40 different programs on, in, in the government right now working on broadband across 14 different agencies and consolidate them into one, which would cut down massively on, uh, on the size of government, it would cut down on inefficiencies. Why aren't we doing it? Th see, this is why I go back to 
the need to have uh, public servants who reject corporate PAC money. My opponent's taken nearly $100,000 from big telecom, and he's doing what they want him to do, and that is to only lay broadband if it makes them money. Well, I think that's nonsense. I think that's offensive, and I think it's destructive to the needs of our children who during this pandemic are suffering immensely with education access. It's devastating to our small businesses who can't even get online to make a living. It's preventing people from putting food on the table. It's devastating to our telehealth. This is a life and death issue. I spoke to one young lady from the Northern Neck who drives two hours all the way to Richmond once a week because she has a rare medical condition and she's expecting and she needs to see a doctor. Could be addressed with telehealth, but it's not allowing them to, uh, so she has to physically come all the way in. It's hurting our farmers who can't get the data they need uh, to, to be effective in their planting cycles. So, you know, you asked what the difference is. The difference is that his plan sinks billions more of tax dollars into corporations in the hopes that they build out broadband, and they haven't yet. Our plan is a proven model that works, that will get us broadband quickly and efficiently. We need to move forward with broadband as a utility. Moving on now, uh, you, you spoke a little bit in the past about how uh, you were interested in getting into politics because um, there are some issues that are inherently systemic and need to be addressed through policy. Uh, and one of those is, of course, racism. So we, we've talked on this podcast in the past about uh, Marcus David Peters, who was a biology teacher at, at Essex High School, um, a black man who, while experiencing a mental health crisis, was killed by police officers. Um, and as, of course, as we all know, there have been many recent uprisings and anti-racist advocacy efforts after the killing of George Floyd, uh, as well as many others. And so considering not only the, the national scale of these events and uh, this outcry against uh, police brutality, but also the, the local influences uh, in the first district, where do you propose that Virginia goes from here? Sure, sure. You know, I, I've had the privilege of meeting with the family of Marcus David Peters and hearing from them directly. And I think this speaks to the systemic issues that we talked about. Um, you know, I talked about this extensively in the debate with my opponent on criminal justice reform. And afterwards, I was grateful to receive calls from numerous law enforcement officers who expressed their support and are involved with our campaign um, in, in, in guiding and advising us. I think we have to recognize that um, there were two massive injustices committed um, that are harming our society right now. One of them is we decided at some point that law enforcement is going to not only be responsible for things like preventing and stopping violent crime, which is what they're trained to do, and we need to equip them effectively to do that, but we also decided that we want law enforcement to address mental health issues and addiction issues and school bullying issues and, you know, as I said in the debate, cats stuck in a tree issues. And uh, it's unfair to law enforcement to burden them with things that they simply aren't trained for. And, uh, and then as a result, um, uh, we had the second massive injustice, which is that when folks needed support, uh, you know, someone like Marcus David Peters, he needed a mental health professional to, to, to help uh, manage his crisis, keep himself safe from, her, from hurting himself, um, and, and prevent there from being any kind of escalation. That's what he needed. And the injustice is that he was denied that basic right. He was, uh, you know, the, the folks struggling from addiction um, are denied that basic right to have someone who is a trained professional on addiction from helping them. The child in school who is acting up, who needs a mentor, a child counselor, a psychologist, 
is denied that basic right and instead they get uh, a law enforcement officer. And so we create this massive divide um, and especially at a time when mental illness is, uh, is quickly spreading. I read a recent study that said that between uh, young people between the ages of 18 and 24, during this pandemic, one in four have seriously contemplated suicide. Uh, and that's devastating. And it speaks to how much more we need to allocate our resources to address mental illness and mental health. So when we talk about the solution here, uh, the solution, you know, is for me is driven by the data. It's driven by the science. It's driven by what the experts are telling us. What the experts are telling us is that we need to stop burdening law enforcement with uh, responsibilities that we haven't trained them for, and we need to allocate resources, additional resources, to hire mental health professionals, to hire addiction experts, to hire child counselors and child psychologists to address these issues that are impacting society, and stop dumping all of that on law enforcement. We need to not only repeal qualified immunity, but we need to repeal these extra burdens we're placing on law enforcement. Because look, what was the last time you saw anybody get upset with law enforcement because they were called to a person who was trying to commit mass murder and they stopped the mass murder, right? When was the last time you saw somebody uh, get upset with a law enforcement officer because uh, a person was trying to commit rape and they had to use lethal force to stop the rapist? Um, you know, we hire law enforcement to keep us safe, to protect us. They put their lives on the line to protect and serve us. And we, we afford them uh, uh, lethal force in these kinds of dangerous and violent situations. That's not what people are upset about. What people are upset about is when a, a young black woman is in her own home, law enforcement barges in um, uh, and opens fire and kills her as as she sleeps. What we're upset about is when Tamir Rice, a young black child is 12 years old, playing with a toy in a park, law enforcement pulls up in 1.7 seconds, shoots and kills him. Uh, what we're upset about is Eric Garner being choked to death. This is the issue that we need to address. This is the problem that we need to address. So, so when it comes to qualified immunity, yes, we need to repeal it. And simultaneously, we need to hire uh, additional experts and professionals to address these additional responsibilities that are currently taken on by law enforcement that they don't need to be taking on in the first place. And, and here, and again, going back to proven models, those uh, localities that have done so, uh, Camden, New Jersey is a really good example of this. They actually ended up hiring more law enforcement officers. So this whole idea of defunding the police uh, kind of goes out the window too. According to my opponent, I want to defund the police, which again is, it's a lie from him but Camden actually ended up hiring more law enforcement officers, but they held them to a much higher standard. They hired uh, extra professionals. And guess what? They saw a 95% drop in police complaints and police violence incidents. So, you know, while he's speaking in hypotheticals that don't actually have any proven model that they work, I'm listening to law enforcement, I'm listening to the sheriffs, and I'm following the proven models that actually work. And, and the last point I'll, I'll make about this is that the sheer irony of him launching this allegation that I want to cut police pay and defund the police is, is that between the two of us, I have gone against my own party. I went against my own Democratic Party earlier this year when they denied police pay by publicly rejecting that decision and saying that this is wrong and immoral. I was very open and transparent about this. I did this knowing full well, I'm running for Congress and I need the support of these Democratic leaders. But for me, this is about principle. It's not about politics, and it's about making sure that we're upholding our values, upholding justice as that supreme standard. And moreover, I support the HEROES Act, which also would have allocated $900 billion towards local and state governments to ensure that law enforcement can get paid 
and, and that they have a living wage. My opponent not only has never gone against his own party on this issue, uh, even when, it, uh, when the science tells him to, um, he voted against the HEROES Act, which actually does defund the police. So the irony is he's projecting onto me what he's actually done, uh, and that's harmful not only to our law enforcement, it's harmful to our community, and it's harmful to public trust. This is, this is what qualified immunity has done, is that we have given uh, so much uh, on the plate of law enforcement, and then rather than recognizing that, hold on a second, maybe we shouldn't ask them to do things we're not training them to do, we put up qualified immunity to protect them from liability. And meanwhile, the people who's, who lost a family member are left um, in a state of injustice. Wouldn't it be better if we asked law enforcement to simply be accountable for preventing and stopping violent crime and these other issues that they aren't trained for? We had them handle these other issues. So, so that's the kind of change that I want to see. And, and we need to, to do that by having national standards. My opponent agree, disagrees with that, which is mind boggling to me. Because last I checked, uh, equal justice under the law is enshrined in our constitution. I haven't read the constitution in a couple of days, so maybe it changed, I don't know. But in the meantime, I'm pretty darn sure that we are all afforded the exact same equal justice and that requires consistent standards. And again, contrary to what my opponent said in our debate, the National Fraternal Order of Police, the president has also said that we want national standards. So my conversations, again, are based on science, facts, speaking with law enforcement and ensuring that we're moving forward to protect our community, to protect our law enforcement officers and to build trust between law enforcement and the community. But I appreciate how in depth you went into that question, and you know it is such a pressing issue. So, in regards to your your mission and your goals, you've spoken a lot about um, how the, the missions and goals of your campaign and, and how you hope to carry those with you. And so, if elected to Congress, what what can the people of the first district expect from you, both in terms of legislation uh, that you'll sponsor, but also how will you make sure to be present and engaged in the community? I know you mentioned the the town hall initiative and, and making sure that you and your campaign hold town halls, um, I think every quarter you, you said. So what are some ways that you'll continue to stay involved and present in the community um, while also sponsoring legislation that will support the community? Well, we already talked about, uh, you know, the, the commitment of minimum one town hall per quarter. Um, but, uh, but I think we have to go beyond that. And, and that's where uh, I'm already heavily involved with various nonprofits and organizations and uh, you know, free health clinics and having uh, in, and police academies, and we're having consistent and regular conversations with them. Um, I'm involved with the fairs and um, the, uh, the, the, the farmers markets um, uh, with, with you know, local school boards. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, I want to be responsive. Uh, to the needs of our communities. So when we look at these, these issues that we're facing right now, you know, COVID-19 and, and, and broadband or the lack thereof and healthcare, um, I want to ensure that every single person out there knows that when I talk about being accessible, this is not uh, lip service. Uh, this is uh, meaningful. I mean, just yesterday we were in King George uh, for an event and uh, two gentlemen walked by and it seemed pretty clear that they were not supporters. And in fact, I found out later that they were in fact supporters of uh, the president. Um, and uh, I invited them in and they, to their immense credit, came in to our, our, our conversation and stuck around for a while. We had a robust and meaningful conversation. Um, so, you know, it, it's not just the town halls, it's gonna be available 
to come to your churches, to your places of worship, to your nonprofits, to your school board meetings, um, and, and to be meaningfully accessible, not from behind a computer screen uh, or a phone call where I can screen questions and block out the ones I don't like, but uh, from being truly transparent uh, to meet not only on Capitol Hill, but to have offices spread throughout the district uh, where we can schedule times to get together, um, to have conversations and to have meaningful engagement. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Like uh, the the town hall thing you, you mentioned where, where the questions are, are screened. Uh, I, I experienced that and I'm suspicious of, of why they, why um, Whitman's office has the town halls, the telephone town halls set up like that. Um, because it seemed like when I was on the call, the only questions that he was getting were ones in support or ones that weren't hard to answer. So, uh, sure. sure. And, and, you know, and I'll, I'll even go a step further than that. Even, you know, what he considers engagement is really obscure. I mean, he's right now boasting about having sent out more emails than any member of Congress on COVID-19. Well, two things. One, last I checked, you're elected to pass legislation, not send emails. Um, anybody can send emails. Um, and two, um, the fact is the emails he sent out in February and March, the most critical time of the pandemic, falsely told us the virus is low risk and not spreading. Uh, and then he falsely reassured us that we would have mass testing available soon and we still don't have that. So the information he sent out was devastating and wrong. And, and you know, he, he likes to brag about how he got uh, nominated for an award for a constituent engagement. Well, take a close look at that award. It's a self-nomination. Uh, he self-nominated himself and then put out a press release about how honored he is that he got nominated. Uh, so I, it's at this point, it's like a parody, if you ask me, um, that he's doing everything possible to avoid meaningful engagement and open and transparent engagement, but he puts up this fantastic veneer. And I think this is just, is beneath uh, what the people of the first district deserve. And so my commitment is not just to give you lip service, but to be meaningfully available and accessible. And, and I wanna emphasize this key point, not just to the people who voted for me, but to anybody within the first district, because unless and uh, until a person is willing to serve all constituents, they have no business being in public service. I'm really interested in, in what you said about going to school board meetings and, and other community events. Um, obviously, the school board has got to be one of the most local forms of local government. And I'm curious of what you think of the idea of sort of collaboration between federal and local branches and how you might help facilitate that or how you think it could be useful? Uh, it's an extraordinarily important question. In fact, this is a conversation I've had with Senator Tim Kaine uh, at length. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> Senator Tim Kaine was my law school professor too. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting being able to now uh, run for office and have his support. Um, you know, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One is that um, unfortunately, due to Senator McCon Mitch McConnell, he's been blocking federal um, uh, aid to state governments. The, the, the federal government is, is cutting itself short of about 40% of the money they're supposed to be allocating. We're not receiving right now. Um, and this has been going on for several years. And this is why we need to flip the Senate to make sure that we get federal support. Uh, it's also why we need to make sure Joe Biden wins the presidency so we have a secretary of education who actually believes in education and uh, unlike Bessie DeVos, who continues to strip down um, uh, education. But I think the, the most meaningful impact that can happen here is for the federal government to, to play a role in undoing the, the, the lasting legacy of redlining. 
Um, redlining, the, the very quick explanation for, for those who aren't familiar with that term is that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and even if you're Wells Fargo today, um, uh, the federal government actually engaged with banks to cut out uh, black ownership of homes. And home ownership is the number one way that wealth is built in America. And uh, as a result of redlining, the federal government would not give loans to black families, or if they did, it was at a high interest rate that almost, would almost guarantee default, resulting in dilapidated homes and lower home values and therefore lower tax revenue. Well, as you know, uh, uh, you know the budget for schools comes from primarily where? It comes from local home, home, uh, home property taxes. Well, if the home uh, property tax itself is low because the neighborhood has been uh, cut out through you know, redlining, then the children who go to those schools aren't gonna have the same resources. And so we have this legacy of schools that are predominantly black and brown that are simply not getting the same support as schools in more affluent or more white neighborhoods. And as a result, it's resulting in a, a growth of the achievement gap, uh, a, a growth of the level of wealth and income inequality between black and white families. And so I think the federal government has a meaningful role to play in uh, undoing this damage by investing more resources into those schools in those neighborhoods that have been um, denied equal access over the years. And I think that's a conversation they can have directly with local school boards to uh, better understand what the specific needs are, what that gap looks like from where they are to where they need to be, and to ensure that when we pass legislation, there aren't any unfunded mandates, which, you know, which is unfortunately a common reality where we'll say we want teachers to do these 10 things, but we're only gonna fund resources to do six things. Um, and, and those last four things are called the unfunded mandates that you're still required to do them, but we're just not gonna give you any money to do them. That's where I would love to see more engagement between the federal and the local and, and certainly the state um, to undo the damage done and to ensure that every child truly has meaningful and equal access to, uh, to education. And I wanna emphasize one thing that, that there's, an, there's commonly a criticism of this, that uh, you know, we're being unfair by giving more resources to, to, to black children than white children. And, and, and I just, I wanna you know, nip this in the bud because what this strategy is doing is not you know, being unfair by giving more resources. It's by ensuring that every child has equal resources. Um, black communities have been denied equal access and equal resources. This is just a, a very objective fact, right? Uh, when you look at black family wealth compared to white family wealth, uh, the, the, the median wealth of, of, of white families in America is about 147,000. Uh, the median wealth of black families in America is about 3,600. So 3,600 versus 147,000. And it, it traces directly back to the legacy of Jim Crow, uh, to the le legacy of the war on drugs, and to the legacy of redlining, all of which have targeted black Americans. So this is about making sure that black and brown children, um, and certainly uh, white children from lower income communities who have been denied equal access, are finally given that equal access. So this is not a handout. This is a, a form of integrity and, and justice to ensure that our constitutional promise of equal justice under the law isn't lip service, but there is action behind it to make it a reality. Right on, right on. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, so our, our last question uh, is just really about your campaign. So even though flipping the first district 
used to seem like something that would, that would not happen. You know, it used to seem very unlikely. Your your campaign has has gained a, a lot of national attention, but also a lot of momentum just just within the district, um, and probably have gained that national attention because of the momentum in the in the district. So, well, there have been candidates in the past who who have had great ideas, like uh, you know Matt Rowe and and Vanjie Williams, and just to name a couple of them. What about your campaign is is different? I think our campaign is unique. Um, for a number of reasons. One, you know, let's, let's, you know, make sure we give credit where due and recognize the, the incredible work that past candidates um, have put into this district uh, to move the ball forward. Uh, where we are now is not in a vacuum. It's building upon the success of past candidates, you know, whom you've, you've uh, eloquently mentioned. Um, and, and what we've done with our campaign is when we talk about compassion through action, we've focused on ensuring that every policy we put forth is truly built on compassion, is truly upholding justice as that supreme standard, and making sure that we're putting people uh, in positions to succeed. Um, the military is a huge part of this district. Uh, I think we have over 100,000 members of the military and veterans in this district. And so before we even launched, we built out our veterans committee led by a retired army veteran, Stan Scott, who lives in the district. Um, and our veterans committee has been active and robust. We just launched our, our Compassion for Veterans plan to ensure that veterans have better support economically, mental health, uh, physical health, uh, better acclimation to civilian life. Um, likewise, when we talk about education policy, our constituency outreach director is a retired educator, an African-American woman named Kim Cummings. And when we talk about education policy, when we talk about meeting the needs of parents and teachers and students and, and reaching out to the community, uh, we have a well-respected leader in the community who's been doing this work for decades. Uh, Justice Stan has been doing the work for decades on policy and military and veterans needs. Kim has been working for decades in this space as well. Uh, when we talk about our, our campaign manager, Ayodele, um, he is uh, somebody who lives in the district and has worked on past congressional campaigns and on presidential campaigns. Um, our funding director comes from past presidential campaigns and knows what he's doing. So we've created a team of leaders who truly get it. They're here because they're committed to our mission. They are passionate about serving the community. Um, and and I've, I've been hands off. I've trusted them to take the lead and they've just done a phenomenal job of pulling people together. I mean, the sheer fact that we have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers working on a regular basis is a testament to our work. We have a fellows program of young people in their late teens, early 20s, helping us write policy, being out in the front, at the forefront of our campaign. Um, our funding strategy is to work on building a coalition of small dollar donors. I am so proud of the fact that not only have we not taken a single corporate PAC dollar, but we have over 22,000 individual contributions to our campaign. And to put that in perspective, we've had more contributions to our campaign this year alone than my opponent has had to his 13 years in Congress combined. That's the momentum we've built. That's what happens when you lead with compassion. That's what happens when you run a campaign that brings together conservatives, progressives, libertarians, vegetarians, you name it. We are bringing people together and that momentum is paying off. And that's why we feel so confident about, uh, about not only winning on November 3rd, but having the momentum to continue to work and bring our nation together, our community together, and our district together uh, on November 4th and beyond. Thank you all so much for listening to the show today. 
For our final thoughts, we want to remind you that next Tuesday, October 13th, is the last day to register to vote. Additionally, early in-person voting has already started in Virginia and ends on October 31st. Mail-in ballots can be requested until October 23rd and must be postmarked by Election Day on November 3rd. So get out there and vote, y'all, and have a great day. Thanks for listening. I'm Denzel Mitchell. I'm Tahi Wiggins. And I'm Mary Shivers, and we'll see you next time.